Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan. I'm joined, as always, by Guy Christopher Adami and EY from SoFi. That is Liz Young. Welcome, people. Good morning. Happy Monday. What up, Dan? Less of a happy Monday for Liz. I woke up in this fine city of New York City, and you you had to drive in four hours of, of traffic from the beach. What was that? It was an interesting wake up. You got to listen to Squawk and Friends all morning, I'm sure, for three and a half hours. Well, the, the beginning of it would have been Worldwide Exchange, not Squawk and Friends. So yeah, it was a long drive with everybody else in the tri-state area. All right. We have a lot to get through this morning because it's not that busy of a week in the market. But, Guy, I don't know if you saw the headline on the Wall Street Journal. We are in a new bull market. We are, we are. We are up 20% from the closing low in October of 2022. Things felt really bad then. Things feel downright euphoric, at least in the markets right now. We had the Saudis with an oil cut here. So crude's partying a little bit, Guy, this morning. In general, Liz, though, it seems like the jobs report, and it's a word that Guy likes to use often, would be Goldilocks. No, is, please don't. Oh, there, there might be people listening for the first time. Who might not get the and joke. they might actually believe you when you say okay. that. I will tell you, I want to say without equivocation, that I've never used that term on financial television ever. And if, in fact, I do use that term, yeah. it's time to put my ash out to pasture. Back all to right. you. But, but Liz, the all-important May jobs report that came out on Friday had a big headline number, but there was some stuff under the hood that might give both. If you were like one of those hawks, like we're saying the Fed needs to continue the job, or you were in the camp of the Fed could pause, they could skip, they could signal one and done, there was a little something for everybody in that. But I think the most important thing is that the stock market ripped on Friday. And you could tell me, was it a summer Friday? Was it light volume? Like it's breaking out. And one thing I'll say, as bearish as I have been, and I know that Guy and I have been trying to pick apart this rally in, in different phases over the course of the last couple of months since the kind of March malaise in and around the, the Silicon Valley Bank thing, we had definitely acknowledge the technical setup for the major indices in the S&P and the NASDAQ have been very constructive. But where we've been getting caught up is like data like we saw on Friday, where we want to look at glass half full, right? Or you're half full, we're half empty. So talk to us. Where are we on this thing? Yeah. So at the beginning of last week, we talked about the debt ceiling. I think part of Friday's rally was that we had actually finally closed the door on that. It felt like that had been put to bed. We passed it. Everything looked hunky-dory. And then add on top of that a jobs report that gave the impression that 
the market continued to be tight. A job for everybody, if you want it, is out there. And you're right. There was there were things under the surface, things like the unemployment rate actually went up quite a bit from 3.4 to 3.7 percent. And then when you look at just the different surveys, there's continuing to be these conflicting surveys. And you've got the NFP report, which is what we talk about mostly on Jobs Friday, which is the non-farm payroll report. But then you've got the household survey that actually showed a reduction in jobs of over 300,000. So there's this huge gap, this measurement gap. And it is difficult to figure out which one is right. If you average them out, you come out with actually zero-ish, right? Similarly, when you look at things like gross domestic product versus gross domestic income, right? Gross domestic income is telling a completely different story than gross domestic product. You average them out and the number is actually slightly negative. I think what we're in right now with this market, and I joked before we started the pod, hey guys, should we be bullish today? We're in a new bull market. We've got new highs on some stuff. I think where we're in right now is that we've got enough euphoria and enough optimism. And there are good things happening. I'll recognize that there are good things happening. And Armageddon has not materialized, as many of us expected by now. But people are searching for reasons to keep buying. And they're able to find them so far. We're finding them in some of this data. And we're finding them in the tape, so to speak. I I use that ironically in a podcast called On the Tape. But we're finding them in the tape, right? You're finding momentum. You're finding that there are other buyers in the market. And it's just reinforcing the behavior of, yeah, okay, I should stay in. I'll get in. I'll stay in. And I'll close it out with this little comment. Last week, I wrote about the international landscape. And if you're an investor and you want to be in equities, you look around and it's, I don't know, this is still the best place to be. I'm not ready to completely get out yet. So here we are with capital still searching for somewhere to go, and it's going to those places that everybody knows and loves. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot here. And over the weekend, I actually did some soul searching and some reading. And if you look at the under-the-radar stuff that nobody really talks about, first of all, we're as stretched as we've been in terms of some metrics, in terms of stochastics, RSIs, all these different metrics since probably late 1990s, 1998, 1999. That's a wee bit concerning. The Treasury now that we've raised this debt ceiling has to raise about $1.5 trillion from now to the end of the year. Janet Yellen, I don't think, and my, my sense is they can't buy those Treasuries because they're still trying to do quantitative tightening. So somebody's going to have to buy that. The liquidity is going to have to come from somewhere. I don't think the market fully comprehends what that means. And the, yeah, the euphoria out there, buying begets buying. I totally get it. But We're at a point now where I don't think people are really paying attention to what's going on. And whether the Fed pivots, pauses, skips, whatever you want to use, there's still 500 basis points of hikes that is working its way through the system that I think, again, we're starting to feel. Now, I thought that would take hold a long time ago. It hasn't, but it doesn't mean that it won't. It's just delayed, Dan. So yeah, I understand that the price action suggests you should be bullish. But nothing's changed under the surface to make me bullish. As a matter of fact, the technicals suggest completely otherwise. And Elizabeth Young, earlier on the Long Island Expressway, you must have been tweeting in traffic. You pointed out that we're right at a 61.8% retracement. Look at you channeling your inner Fibonacci. So well done. Some of those metrics you're talking about are real technical metrics, right? And so there's some people who just focus on fundamentals. They focus on inputs like valuation. They, they're they just focused on what are earnings estimates, what are consensus, and what are the likelihood going to happen here. And that would be a very fundamental approach. We like to look at a whole host of different things. And I, I guess the point, you're not cherry picking by saying that the charts and everything are screaming at levels that would suggest there's a pullback coming. I think 
importantly, and this is not Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley, but this is another strategist over there. This is Andrew Sheets. This was a quote from a Bloomberg article this morning. Morgan Stanley expects a shock 16% U.S. profit drop to kill rally. We think the downside risk to U.S. earnings is now in a note published on Sunday. While a deteriorating liquidity backdrop is likely to put downward pressure on equity valuations over the next few months, and that's speaking guide to what you just mentioned about the $1.4 trillion that the Treasury needs to raise, we also see EPS disappointments ahead as revenue growth slows and margins contract further. I think it's also interesting, there was a quote from a guy that I follow at Jeffries, and that Jeffries had a software conference out in California last week, and it was interesting, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, they had a lot of companies, 65, I think, of all the biggest ones out there, and they were talking about guidance, and they were saying that a lot of these companies weren't speaking to any specific guidance, but they were speaking to the trend in AI and how exciting it is, and they're trying to put some sort of, they're trying to quantify what the market opportunity is, right? Once they put some of this technology across their platforms. And I think that's interesting at a time where we definitely do are feeling enterprise softness as far as spending. And if we do see that in some of these bigger companies have been driving a large part of this rally. And we go from, and we talked about Butters, I think on the Friday pod a little bit, and we also talked about it on Thursday's market call, where the estimate cuts for the current quarter are coming in at the lowest pace they have in the last year, right? So if all of a sudden analysts are just sick of cutting estimates, and then we do actually have data that starts to weaken and we start having companies guide lower and we have those estimate revisions, that's how you could get a really nasty sell-off in the stock market and a very complacent stock market, Liz. We talked about this too, I think a few days ago. We are sitting here today is June 5th. By the end of this month, a day after the end of this month, we will be in the second half of the year, which means that when you think about earnings estimates, we're usually talking about forward 12 months. That's when the 2024 stuff is going to roll in. And where's 2024 estimates, right? It was like 246, something like that, mid 240s. That's a pretty big jump from two straight years of 220-ish if things come in as expected for 2023. I think that the possibility of being disappointed is probably higher because the expectations are higher for 2024. And when you think about what that forward 12 months looks like, now, look, it's possible, not probable, in my opinion, that we hit those. I think there has to be a pretty big shift in what occurs with the consumer and what occurs in spending patterns in order to do that. Because as inflation comes down, and we still won't be at target by the end of the year, according to the Fed. But as inflation comes down and as liquidity dries up and tightening continues to wreak its havoc on different places in the market and different places on the consumer, you got to have that revenue come from somewhere. And if we've already cut costs, if companies have already cut costs as much as they can, which I think they did a decent job of starting at the end of last year and earlier this year, there's not enough left to cut. So you have to have the top line go up in order to meet a $246 a share price target for 2024 earnings. So there's a lot that still has to happen on the optimism camp across the index in order for that to actually occur. And again, I'm not saying it's impossible, but the setup doesn't look all that supportive for it to actually occur. Guy, from a positioning standpoint, there was an article in the journal yesterday, and this is the sort of thing that I think a lot of people, they get their antennas up and people who know how some of this positioning actually works with the long short community, but bearish bets against S&P 500 are surging despite love for big tech. Hedge funds and other speculative investors have built up big 
bet that the S&P 500 will decline, making their most bearish position since 2007. At the same time, they're preparing for a rally in technology-focused NASDAQ 100, with net bullish wagers in recent weeks approaching the highest level since late last year. And so this is a quote from Jake Gordon at Bespoke. Pessimistic positioning of this scale can be a contrarian indicator. Okay, so I guess my point is like you're seeing, and we talked about this a little bit last week on some of the pods, you're seeing a lot of investors who are just loaded up on the biggest names that are benefiting from all the hype around AI right now, but you're probably hedging in S&P futures or S&P puts, that sort of thing, because on a vol basis, they're really cheap. The VIX closed below 15 on Friday, right? So if you're like YOLOing calls in NVIDIA and Apple at all-time highs and all the other stuff that are benefiting, the S&P is a great hedge, right? Especially up 20% from those October lows. And we also know we're up about 12, 13% just from the lows in March. To me, it's not as, I, I don't think it's as contrarian as you might think. It tells me that the concentration in the biggest names that make up 25% of the S&P 500 and they make up 50% of the NASDAQ 100, an easy way to hedge that is with a 15 VIX in the S&P futures, the S&P puts. If that is in fact the right hedging vehicle, I can make an argument that those stocks that they're, Basically, there, there is a large portion of positions in those seven, eight, 10 names. They can go down pretty meaningfully. And one has to wonder, maybe you won't see the commensurate move in the S&P vis-a-vis all the put protection that's in there creates a bit of a speed bump to the downside. Anytime you start getting into these hedging strategies, unless, unless, you're, you know, unless you're hedging the instrument that you're long or short with a derivative of that instrument, things can get pretty dicey. So I understand why people would be buying S&P puts as protection. My point, I guess, is I'm not necessarily sure it's going to provide the protection they need if some of these stocks are getting set up for a significant move lower. Now, with that said, a lot of these names make up a big portion of the S&P, so it should be somewhat self-fulfilling. But we've seen some really strange things over the last couple of years, Dan. Yeah, but I guess the point is what you're trying to do if you're a long short manager and you have a mandate to have a certain net exposure, right? Like, or can't be above that. An easy way to do that is to take down that net is buying cheap S&P. No, that's fair. And so that, that's kind of my point. It's not as contrarian as you think. And it can actually go the opposite way. If so, the market does start heading lower and the VIX is near 20, right? And then you have, everybody's gonna head for the doors in the same six or seven names because their outperformance has been so dramatic in, in the semis in Apple, which is up 42% of the year in Microsoft and the like. So to me, it creates the potential for a VIX that is actually telling you a very different story if it were to rally 30%, that is, because you could have an S&P down five to 7% in two trading days. That, that's the thing. And I'm not saying this to be scary, but like th th there's just a level of complacency that I think is also represented in all of that S&P put buying. So I take the opposite take. Okay, Liz, over the weekend, Guy had been talking about this a lot. I think you said, I, you were quoting, paraphrasing late last week that somebody from OPEC Plus said, be prepared for anybody to short the crude oil here to get the ouchies here. I would say that the gap up on that million barrel cut a day in crude it's up 1%. How much is a commodity rallying factoring into the way you're thinking about inflation or the way inflation is moderating? We also had some ISM data today that wasn't particularly great. There seems to be this push-pull where the data is suggesting there's economic weakness. We've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about China. It's not particularly great here. So I'm just curious, if crude were to close down on the day here, Liz, on that sort of announcement that was telegraphed out of the Saudis, 
What would that make you think about growth, I guess, in general? Yeah, first of all, so crude, if you look at it over a three-day, a three-trading day period, it's still up about six and a half percent. So a decent move. But I'm not sure that oil is really sending the signals of the broader economy, at least for the last couple of weeks. A few things happening we talked about last week as well with the debt ceiling. The government didn't, this is my opinion, government didn't have money to start refilling the SPR. It had been in the range, oil had been in the range where they said they were going to buy, they didn't buy. So it was what the heck, why crickets on the buying? They didn't have money to buy. So now if they come in as a buyer, you've got obviously an increase in demand add a cut in supply to that, and oil dynamics are pretty poised for a rise in the price of oil. But to your point, there's not a lot of huge global demand going on. There's not a lot of, I think, enthusiasm about more activity than before going on, at least not in the super near term, given what's going on in China and and given Europe's stagflation problem and just a slowdown. And I'll tell you guys, because I've been filling my car up with more gas to sit in traffic, gas is still expensive. And I never, because I didn't have to drive very much before, this is anecdotal, but I didn't drive very often before. I'm driving a lot more often now, so I pay more attention to how much it costs. Before I was filling my car up maybe once a month, now it's once a week. It's expensive. That takes a real big bite out. And that's got to still be hurting. So it is still an inflation story. And the thing about inflation is this. We've been on this steady path downward in all the inflation measures for quite a while, since last summer. And I think the assumption was that it would just get extrapolated out into the future. We'd continue to drop, maybe not at the same precipitous pace, but continue to drop. What happens? This is my big fear. What happens if we see a month or two of an increase, right, across the board? And it may not be a dramatic increase, but what if it increases? What if it increases on core? What if it increases on headline? What if one of those whack-a-moles comes back that we thought we had conquered and suddenly drives it higher again? Home prices still haven't fallen. I think that has the potential to really inject some fear into the market and mess with Fed funds futures and mess with kind of the euphoria that's happened in rates and in stocks. 9.1%, what was it, June of last year, I think was that high CPI print. We're in June of this year now where let's call it 4.9. So we have not halved it yet. I can do that math. So I think we all thought at the time, and we said it, that was probably going to be the high print for a while and hopefully the high print in our lifetime. And we suggested you're going to start to see it go lower. Problem, of course, is there's a long way between 4.9% and the desired outcome of 2%. And I think that move is going to be the difficult part to Liz's point. And I will tell you not to get too wonky here, But gas curves suggest that gasoline prices are actually going to start to accelerate to the upside, and she's right. And if you look at some of the other data out there in terms of airlines and stuff, we're pre-COVID levels in terms of people traveling. These are all inflationary things. Now, the backdrop against a global sort of slowdown is one thing. Then the flip side of the coin is there's inflation indicators that are still, in my opinion, flashing red, which again makes their job, they being the Federal Reserve, difficult. But let's put the Fed in the rearview mirror here and just look at the market. In terms of valuations and stuff, in terms of energy, I think what you're seeing here, and these energy stocks we're looking at 1020 this morning, they all open on their highs. They're now basically all on their lows. There's still this rotation into these high valuation, high growth names. And I understand why the chase is on, My question is, what is the outcome on the back of this? I think everybody's getting on one side of that boat. I think they're forgetting that at some point valuations do matter. And in an environment where the yield curve continues to widen out, something we don't talk about, Elizabeth talked about it, 
Her concern when we went to negative 110 basis points wasn't that. It was the snapback we'd see and then what was going to happen in the aftermath. That snapback was significant. I think we got down to 40 basis points, but now we've doubled that. So the yield curve is telling you their problems. The inflation problem is still out there without question. Valuations are stretched. Everybody's getting into a handful of names that at this point are just make no sense in terms of valuation. And I think in terms of the underlying commodity, the stocks are telling one story, but I think it's just become a function of rotation more than anything else. When that yield curve, the inversion, re-steepened, kind of at the height of the regional bank mess, all the failures that were going on, remember what happened in the market. You had Fed funds futures, rate expectations, pricing in three cuts by the end of the year, three and a half, almost four cuts by the end of the year, right? Everything had reversed in a jiffy. So now we go back to still inverted, what are we back, 70 basis points now, something like that inverted? And we're supposed to say, oh, but okay, now everything's fine. We'll just stay inverted for the rest of our lives. Is that how this works? No, of course not. So when it re-steepens again, you have to be on the lookout for that same type of behavior. Are we going to have cuts priced in again? Why would cuts be priced in? You have to look at all the different indicators that changed during that period. And that's why a re-steepening is actually the worrisome piece. The re-steepening right now, I mean, we're near, what, 78 bips or something like that. I guess the longer we stay this steep, it, it just seems to your point, a month or so ago, Fed Fund futures were pricing in maybe 100 basis points of cuts by year end. And now it's basically flat, um, assuming that they don't raise again at the June meeting or over the summer. And I think everything that we just talked about as it relates to commodities, wage inflation, despite the unemployment rate going to 3.7%, it seems like the Fed is really at a pickle right here. And, and that's the thing that I think, to Guy's point about the valuations in the stock market, they're just pricing in the softest of landings. I read an article in the journal this morning, and it was like, why the U.S. recession remains far from here or some shit like that. And there's a, a, an economist who says, I don't think we're any chance we're in a recession. So all of a sudden now, like all the recession fears that had the S&P at 36.50 or something like that in October, here we are at 42.50 and people don't see a recession. We're back to like a no landing scenario. I feel like the complacency level is the issue. And I think that all of us from our experience in the markets, we know that when things are this complacent, it can definitely go longer than you think, but it also resolves itself in a more violent sort of fashion. And I just want to quickly pivot to the banks here. Also, there's talk of, we've been talking about what's on the other side side of the large money center banks benefiting from the regional bank demise. It's going to be higher regulation, right? It's going to be greater participation in the FDIC insurance fund. There was an article in the journal this morning talking about this. All the money center banks, they've been volatile over the last couple of weeks. Guy, I'm just curious. They don't really get off the mat other than no. P. Morgan. They're trading. The volatility bands have widened, but down at a 20% from their kind of earlier 2023 highs. It feels like there's another shoe to drop, though, in the banking sector. And this could be the thing that maybe causes some investors to take their pedal off the metal a little bit. I agree with that. And it's not just us saying that, by the way. There are a lot of people, a lot smarter than I am, that have said similar, that there are more shoe to drops here in the space. As a matter of fact, I think Sheila Bear a month or so ago thought the same thing. And I think she's going to wind up being right. In terms of how do you look at things? Look at the XLF, for example. The XLF in February of 2020, and I think we all remember what happened subsequent to that, topped out around 31 or so. Then you had an extraordinarily precipitous drop. 
as most things did. I think it traded to down to a teenager or so. Look at where we are now in the XLF. It's trading at 32 and a half or so. A number of times, September being the last time, we traded down to 31 or so and bounced. But there is no meaningful bounce in the XLF. And I think that is absolutely telling a story. So I would submit 31 is going to be a huge level of support. The more times we test it, the more I'm inclined to believe we're going to go through it. And the banks just don't trade particularly well. And people want to discount it and say it's not a big deal. It's a big deal because, as we've mentioned a number of times, banks are the lifeblood of an economy that's driven by credit. And when that starts to, I don't want to say seize up, but become more expensive, things are going to break along the way. Yeah, I actually think the market is smarter than many people are giving it credit for. And so if you just take out the big tech names right now, just pick the five, right? Whatever they are, pick them, take them out of this. What the rest of the market is telling you is that it doesn't want to own banks. It doesn't want to own industrials. It doesn't want to own cyclicals. It doesn't want to own small caps. It's the spread among the regular stocks and what actually drives a lot of the U.S. labor market and the U.S. economy. There just isn't appetite for them. So I think that there's actually a little bit more wisdom to be seen in this tape if you ignore the big headlines and the bright, shiny objects. And the messages that it's sending are that there's not some kind of huge cyclical economic recovery or growth spurt coming. And maybe it's just a message that people aren't sure yet. Maybe it's just that, you know what, there's not a lot of signals that tell me that this is the right time to go all in. So I'm not going to go all in yet. It could just be a pause. It could just be I'm going to wait and see. And that's fine. But it's still not an all clear. It's not a buy everything rally. It's not early bull market behavior. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. All right, last thing here, people. Apple Computer, as Guy and I like. Love Apple Computer. It's my favorite company. Own it, don't trade it. Sorry. Own it, don't trade it. And it's up nearly 50% from its January lows. Explain that to me, by the way. I want to to play a little game. It's just math here, Guy. So it's up 50%, and it's making a new all-time high. And the stock is trading about nearly 31 times earnings. And I just want to make a point that For a hardware company, which it still predominantly is a hardware company, I think they get 70% of their sales from iPhone and Macs and alike, and services is obviously made up a bigger percentage, and it's at a higher margin business, but it's a 43% gross margin company, okay? Microsoft, which is expected to grow earnings and sales in the next fiscal year, 2024, 11% about in sales and about 13 or so percent in earnings trades at the same exact multiple as Apple's expected earnings and sales growth is single digits, okay? 
So here we are on the eve or the day of their worldwide developers forum. It's they're about to announce. The they're about to announce this mixed reality headset that would oh, be augmented. Wait a second, hold on. Say reality. that again. Dan. Yeah, you're going to need one. Mel came to me on Fast Money the other day. We were previewing this a little bit, and it's just so interesting to me that the stock is making new all-time highs, is trading at a multiple it has not traded at in a very long time. All the excitement here, at least in the last week, that they're going to announce a product into a different technology frenzy, which is AI. This seems so late 2021 when people were all geeked up about Facebook, metaverse, all that sort of stuff. So this thing's going to land like a lead balloon here. And again, I don't think investors care, but I just wanted to make the comparison. If you're excited about Microsoft and what they're doing with OpenAI and their ability to put these large language models in, into all, across all of their platforms and their ability to monetize it, and that's why it's trading at the multiple it is, that's fine and good. But Apple, which is, has a much different growth profile and a much smaller margin company, is trading at the same multiple. So to me, I guess I would even say I'd rather do Microsoft here than Apple guy. I'd rather do neither. But I'll say this. When Apple was a growth company, and we've talked about this a number of times, but it's important to bring up, it was trading at a value company valuation. And now that it is a value company, it's trading at a growth multiple. And the multiple is excessive, to say the least. In terms of the metrics you just pointed out, single digits earnings growth, single digits revenue growth, margins that are flatlining at best, if not coming in. And actually, their cash hoard has been going lower as well, but I don't want to equivocate here. It's an expensive stock at 31 times. And if you go back and look, I think it was December in 2021 that Apple was about 180 or so dollar stock. It's back there now. So the technicians are going to say this is a critical level. And if you don't think that Apple doesn't trade off, it just goes up in a straight line, think again, this stock is a name that's gone down anywhere from 25 to 40%, six or seven times over the last five or six years. So I don't really know again what people are looking at. I guess it's some sort of perceived flight to quality in the form of Apple, which is fine. It's a great company, but all this move is, and again, we talk about this on Fast Money, we talk about it on the tape, market call. This is multiple expansion. That's all it is. And they didn't invent something new and earnings didn't magically start going higher. It's just people willing to pay more for a dollar's worth of earnings. I think that's happening across a lot of names, right? You've got people just willing to pay more for the same stuff or the euphoria over something that may or may not materialize later this year, sometime next year. And multiple expansion is something that's momentum-y in a sense, and momentum works, and it's a very strong force until it doesn't anymore. And unless you can call that inflection point where it's not going to work and where multiple expansion comes in, frankly, I would have thought that it should have happened already given where rates are, given where tightening is. Multiple expansion doesn't make a ton of sense in this environment, but it's still happening. But that tells me that the momentum is really the thing that's carrying it higher, whether it's Apple or some other stock that hasn't necessarily changed its stripes, that stuff comes to a crashing halt at some point. So I, I don't know when that happens, but this kind of gain on really no great news or no new news is usually what makes me nervous. Yeah, and I just say this, this is a stock that was trading $145 in the throes of the little regional banking crisis that we had in, in early March, and now it's at $184 and it's making new all-time highs. Like I said, when you talk about momentum, when you have that sort of like action off of a low that was in January, a 52-week low, and you're up nearly 50%, and we're talking about a tr $1.2 trillion in market cap, 
your ability to break out from here and go meaningfully higher is not particularly great. So to me, this is not one I think you want to chase. Okay, that was Liz Young, EY from SoFi. She will be back with Guy and me on the market call on Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find that on our YouTube channel at Risk Reversal Media on the YouTube. Guy and I will be back on the market call every day this week, Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. And we will also have Carter Braxton Worth joining us a couple times this week. And then we're going to be back with Danny Moses on our Friday edition of On the Tape. So check it out. Find us in your favorite podcast store, Guy Adami. Thanks for being here with us this morning, and we'll check you all this week. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.